0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy, as always, to be here and appreciate you listening. So i got a really interesting show today. If you recognize my guest's name, Kate Winkler Dawson, it might be because she has been a guest on my show before to talk about her wonderful book called Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer The Great London Smog and the Strangling of a City. She is a documentary producer and a journalism professor at the University of Austin, Texas, and she's got a brand new book out now called American Sherlock Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of American CSI. Thank you so much for joining me once more. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, where did you first hear about? Edward Oscar Heinrich.
2: Well, um, you know, my first book, as you had mentioned, was Death in the Air, um, which was about a, a big event. So, a, a smog in 1952 London, and the people within the smog and trying to survive it, and one of them is a serial killer. Second book, I wanted to do sort of the reverse. I wanted a bunch of different true crime cases, but told through the lens of one person, a forensic scientist. And so I did something pretty simple, which was I bought a book on Encyclopedia of Criminals from Pilgrims through the 1970s in America. And so I just started reading. It's a huge book. It's like a 700 page book. And I just started reading and I was like wading my way through poisoners in the 1800s and then um train robbers and then, you know, the uh mobsters in the 20s. And then I got to this train robbery that happened in 1923 in Siskiyou, Oregon. And there's a mention of the forensic scientist named Edward Oscar Heinrich, which, you know, I I just started looking really because I saw his nickname, which was America's Sherlock Holmes. And so anybody who's intrigued by true crime or by history um, is of course gonna, your antenna is gonna go up with, with a moniker like that. And so, uh, you know, the rest, I, I just started doing what I normally do, which is finding out, if, has anybody written about him before? What would my source material be? How did he make
0: history? Why was he important? Uh, I wanted to ask you about your source material because you were able to get exclusive access to some pretty personal documents from Mr. Heinrich, right? Yeah, I mean, this was an unusual
2: situation, which is great for me, in that he had a massive collection at UC Berkeley. So he taught at UC Berkeley for, you know, about 30, 40 years before he died. Uh, And he started the first criminology classes there in the United States. And so when he died, a few years later his youngest son sort of rented a U-Haul or whatever it was in the 1960s and dumped all of his lab at the foot of of uh, UC Berkeley. And so all of this stuff when you when you send a collection to a university or an archive has to be cataloged. So there's a real human there who is looking through every piece of material assigning in a box or assigning in a folder number and then creating a finding aid. And there were more than a 100 boxes and not just boxes that had, you know, a few things in them. They're jam packed. Everything from, you know, evidence that you can touch to um case files to photographs. He was an avid photographer and to his business journals and newspapers that he never even took the bindings off of. And so it was overwhelming and UC Berkeley has been understaffed. And so this collection sat dormant really for more than 60 years. And when I found Oscar Heinrich, I found his name. I started to, you know, figure out that this was a closed collection. And then UC Berkeley, to its credit, has a little form that you can fill out. And you fill it out and you say, yes, I'm a real author. Yes, I'm with a real publishing company. This will go somewhere. People will read this book. Hopefully. And, um, this is the reason why this collection's important. And I promptly got a note back from the assistant archivist that said, good luck. This is not going to happen, most likely, because we just don't have the staff. But after a few days, I got an email from the head archivist, Laura Michaels, who is fantastic. And she said, I'll do it, but it's going to take me several years. And so that's what happened. You know, I eventually was able to get this exclusive access to the material before it had been fully cataloged because Laura knew I had a deadline, and I was able to read all of his letters, so I read probably close to 2,000 of his letters, and I had about 4,000 of them. I just physically couldn't get through everything that he had. So I had access to all of these letters that I was able to read for the first year. I knew what cases I wanted, and I could get a lot of material from those cases to basically build the structure of the book and then Laura invited me to Berkeley before she had even finished cataloging. And I sat in a warehouse with her um, side by side while she was assigning box numbers and folder, folder numbers to all this stuff and creating this finding aid. I was kind of like holding up pieces of evidence and saying, where does this belong? And she would tell me. So it was a really interesting experience. I'm sure I will never be able to replicate again.
0: Right. <laughs> what would your book have looked like if you hadn't been granted that access?
2: Well, I I think what's interesting about the way that these books, you know, come out, like these narrative nonfiction books is, of course, most of it depends on the writer and the skills of the writer, but I, I cannot do a book that leans mostly on magazines and uh, newspapers of the time period. They're usually pretty unreliable and they just don't give you personal insight. Usually. I mean, there might be a quote here or there, but you're not hearing sort of the inner thoughts of people. And so uh, diaries and journals are really, really important to me. I wouldn't do a book without those. Even trial transcripts, they're facts but they're not really things that, you know, give you um, sort of the vulnerability of the person at the time. And so I it's important to me to have all those materials and it just wouldn't have been as interesting. I mean, I think I could have covered the cases really well. Um, I think it would have been an interesting book, but you wouldn't have a sense of who this man was, who was so incredibly important to forensics and where we are today you know, I mean, this book is not just his sort of razzle dazzle forensics. And it's not just about the cases. It's about this person who evolved over time, not just his skills, but you know who he was as a father as a husband. Um, he was a really complicated person. He had some pretty big problems. And he came from a pretty troubled childhood. And so all of that just sort of you know, wraps itself into this, this, what I hope is an interesting story and and an interesting story about this time period.
0: Yeah, right. So can I ask you about that? His background, his troubled background? Sure. Would you mind talking about that? How you think the experiences he had as a child and as a young man led him to his career path?
2: Yeah, I mean, I try not to ruin too much of my stories, even though I'm excellent at being my own spoiler. But um so his father died um, very unexpectedly when he was a young man, when he was 16, and Oscar found his father's body. You know, he was this teenager and just happened upon the scene. And it, I think it was really traumatizing. Um, it was his first experience with a body. And so, you know, that's sort of an, unfortunately for him, a telling of how things would go in his life. You know, I mean, both professionally and in some ways personally. But really what, what happened was, um, his father died because of really dire finances. And this haunted Oscar for the rest of his life. And it really, you know, he was already somebody, even as a young man, who was hyper-organized and compulsive, obsessive. Um, he really was a controlled person. And after his father died, he kind of became more controlling, both with himself and I think with other people. But it really was interesting because I'm not sure he would have been a forensic scientist had that not happened because he was forced to drop out of high school to support his mother and his two sisters And he started working for a pharmacy in Tacoma, Washington, where he was from, kind of as a cleanup boy. And he was so smart that he was able to study um, these books on on becoming a pharmacist, never taking any formal education classes because he couldn't afford it. And at 18, he passed the state exams. So he became a pharmacist at 18. And that really started him on this career in forensics. He learned about drugs, about medicines about human behavior. And he also became fascinated. I think really one of the first tools besides toxicology, you know, that he learned about was handwriting analysis because he had to interpret all of the horrible handwriting from the doctors who we were, you know, he would get these prescriptions from. So it all began his love of science And chemistry and medicine all really began with this job that he might never have taken. Unlikely he would have taken it had it not been for his father's death.
0: Interesting. So before he comes onto the scene and kind of changes the face of forensics, would you tell us some of the the common investigative methods that were being used by law enforcement?
2: Sure. So he opened his first lab in about 1910. So this was the first private forensics lab in the country. He opened the lab in 1910, but he his reputation really became solidified in the 20s. And he died in 1953. So in the 1920s, which is really where all of this started for him, where his big high-profile cases came in, The joke was that it was the Wild West of forensics, where cops still use the third degree, you know, when they joke about using the third degree to um, get a confession out of people. It was spraying them with hoses. It was beating them. It was verbal intimidation and threats. And this was how a lot of cases were, quote unquote, solved during this time period. And Oscar Heinrich really wanted to change that. So, you know, before there was a lot of use of shoe prints. Um, There was, again, this sort of intimidation. Um, They were starting to use fingerprinting, which was becoming a little bit more common. But really, the forensic science was coming from experts in Europe. So in England and France and uh, some in Germany and Italy, these were really the leaders in forensics. And the forensic scientists in the United States were turning to them through books to really learn more. But Oscar and his contemporaries were the ones who really picked up the mantle and advanced all of this stuff. So he is really well known for a lot of firsts, which was pretty incredible. The first person to introduce uh, blood, spat, blood stain pattern analysis. In the United States in 1925 in a criminal case. The first to use forensic uh, forensics geology, which is in my book, two instances that he used forensics geology, one to confirm the guilt of a suspect, and the second case was to locate a body in pretty incredible ways. And then he was also responsible for the first case of forensic entomology, which was, you know, entomology is how bugs arrive to a crime scene. Blow flies first, beetles come, you know, and et cetera. So, you know, this this was sort of the beginning of these tools that had never been used before in America and in many ways, you know, in the world. So it was it was pretty incredible. And he was responsible for a lot of it. Um, He was also responsible for some really bad science, science that we know now is responsible for convicting people, sending them to prison who don't belong there. Or they might belong there, but the evidence is so poor that they shouldn't be kept there because you cannot convict and set this precedent of convicting people uh, based on bad evidence because then you're going to convict, you know innocent people too. So it was a mixed bag This is the beginning of forensics where they're going to make a lot of mistakes where they think they're right There hasn't been sufficient testing and a lot of the things that he did like training in ballistics like photography with Ballistics are still used today in forensic geology entomology still used today but things that he developed that are very very questionable fingerprinting Bloodstain pattern analysis, you know, these are things that the lie detector, the there are things that have in many instances been um, discredited discounted in court Uh, But he was he Oscar would have stood behind and did stand behind all of these things He also was one of the first to do criminal profiling in the United States. It was very very unusual usually when they profiled someone It was after the person had been caught and they were determining whether or not they were sane and could stand trial. But Oscar did, you know, the reverse. He predicted the habits of criminals before they were caught. And it helped solidify cases in several cases in my book of criminals who, who were eventually caught. Um, and his profiles were exactly uh, fit exactly the, the profiles of these people.
0: So obviously, he faced some criticism. Every pioneer in their field does. Yeah. Was there a defining moment for him and his career uh, where people knew he was the real deal?
2: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, the first two cases in the book start with 1921. And um, one of them is the case against a very famous film star, and the other one was a case of a missing priest and he was pretty impressive with both of those cases but what put him on the map is the third case in the book and that was the Siskiyou train robbery that i mentioned earlier that's where he earned the moniker America's Sherlock Holmes and so in the Siskiyou train robbery um i'll give you kind of the shorthand of it a trio of brothers who um, are looking to, you know, all of these Westerns that they grew up watching where the villains, the train robbers are the good guys, essentially robbing the rich to give to the poor. And so they idolize these guys and they decided they wanted to rob this train that they knew was traveling from Oregon through Oregon to California. And so they stake out this train and it turns into a disaster. And it's so interesting because the Siskiyou train robbery in this book that I read is pitched as the country's America's last great train robbery. The irony there is, is that these brothers actually didn't take anything. They blew apart most of the train. So everything that they were planning to take got blown to smithereens because they didn't know how to use dynamite correctly. Subsequently, they shot and killed four people. And then they're gone in the wind, disappeared into the mountains. And the only thing they left behind, they had some clues. But the only thing that really, really stuck out was a pair of overalls that were left near the detonator uh, of this dynamite that they used. And so the police, the local cops, um, start collect, trying to collect evidence as much as they could. And again, this is 1923, so this was haphazard. I mean, they didn't really know what they were looking for until federal agents from the government were sent down. So because this was a Southern Pacific railway train, Southern Pacific sent some investigators down to work with a U.S. postal uh, federal agent, an investigator, because... Uh, this was also carrying U.S. postal mail. And one of the people who was killed was a clerk who was guarding the mail. And the, and the brothers felt that there were millions and millions of dollars in gold and in money, cash and checks in this part of the mail train. So when these federal investigators came down, they took the uh, pair of overalls, uh, denim overalls, and they examined it and found virtually nothing except for a smear of grease on the left pocket of the bib of the overalls. And it was mechanics grease. And so they immediately go and find the first sort of neer to well mechanic nearby who has grease, of course, on his hands because that's what he does for a living. He's a mechanic. And they have him put on the overalls. And they fit sort of. And the mechanic says, I don't know what you're talking about. They put him in jail. And the sheriff there is nervous, as are the federal agents, because they just aren't sure this is enough evidence to put this guy away. And also, the people on the train, there were passengers at the back of the train. who Nobody was killed. There were people hurt because the concussion from the blast, you know, um, created lots of glass and people were cut. But none of the passengers were killed. And these passengers reported two or three people, not just one. So they're using the third degree They're shaking down this mechanic. They're trying to get his accomplices. And in the meantime, the federal agents say, we need to find someone else to help us. And so they send the overalls to Edward Oscar Heinrich, who has his lab in Berkeley. And he receives the overalls. And this is what makes him unique, Eric. I mean, this is like, to me, what is so spectacular about him. He was the forensic scientist who set the blueprint for other scientists to collect evidence and catalog it and organize it and keep it. And so when we went to the archive, it was all cataloged and, and, and kept neat, right? He used special containers. He had a methodical way of using tweezers to collect every fiber. He starts from the top. He goes all the way down to the bottom, collecting all of these fibers, looking in every pocket, Looking under the microscope, he spent 20, you know, in his notes, he says he spent 24 hours straight working on this one garment. And that's not unusual for him. He's got two boys playing loudly upstairs and a wife who's trying to keep house for him. And he's downstairs locked away in his lab. And he's examining this garment and he's picking things off of it. And he's putting them in special containers and he's taking notes. And as someone who has read the notes, um I would say more than 300 cases that he worked on. I can tell you that it was detailed, it was meticulous, and he wrote every single measurement that he came across down. He took photographs. And so one of the interesting things that he did, that he had this beautiful photograph, I think is in the book. I have a lot of pretty good photographs that he took. Um, he took a, a um, door, like a, just a wooden door, and he hung it from his ceiling in his lab. And he tacked this pair of overalls to the door. And then he placed a pair of funny looking shoes underneath the overalls. So after he went through all of the overalls with a fine tooth comb, and he's looking through all of these um, pockets and he starts cataloging this stuff, he starts to build a profile. And this is why he became uh, America's Sherlock Holmes all over the world in newspapers, these federal agents had come up with one clue, a grease stain, right? And Heinrich, when it was all said and done, culled about 25 to 30 clues total, just from one pair of overalls. And the cops came down and the federal agents came down and said, what do you have? And he said, okay, this man is, um, under six feet. He's under 175 pounds. He has light brown hair. He clips his fingernails. And here's the biggest takeaway. You need to release your mechanic because this isn't mechanic's grease. It's pitch from a fir tree in a very particular part of Washington. And he said, this guy is a lumberjack. He found uh, he used bo- forensic uh, botanical evidence. So he found chips that he could prove came from a specific type of fir tree in a specific area of Washington state. And they said, how do you guys, how do you know that this is, you know, specifically a lumberjack? And he said, I can also tell from the way that he pinned his his overalls, he used exclusively on one side. So he was using tools in one hand and pinning and unpinning his overalls with another hand. He found these chips in the pocket and he said, look at the way he rolled up his cuffs on his overalls. That's the way a, a, a lumberjack does it so that he doesn't damage the bottom of the overalls. He tucks it into the top of his boots. And that's what those boots were. They were lumberjack boots that he had had years earlier. And he was able to really like use those boots and narrow down the height based on the straps of the overalls, the color of hair based on hair that, you know, he found within the overalls. And then the biggest takeaway, I think, was that in this tiny, tiny pocket, where people keep a pencil, the front bib of the overalls. He used a crochet um, a crochet needle and he stuck it down and he pulled out a tiny, tiny wadded up piece of paper. He carefully steamed it, unrolled the paper and used a chemical and he could see numbers on it from a U.S. postal receipt. And it came back to uh, someone who used a fake name and they were able to trace it to one of the brothers and everything that he said the criminal profile that he built based on this one pair of overalls tallied perfectly with one of the duotremont brothers it was amazing it was amazing and so when those headlines hit that he had not only found this latent clue that everybody had missed that depended directly on one of the brothers and then he had not only done that but sort of you know built this incredibly accurate profile you know, that was sort of the razzle-dazzle of forensics. And so now people, forensic scientists now call him probably the most accurate person in latent trace evidence in the history
0: of forensics,
2: which is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So again, these were the Diatremont brothers. And this is one of my favorite true crime cases ever. The robbery, attempted robbery, um, happened on October 11th, 1923. Have you been to the site where it happened?
2: No, I would have loved to no, I love Oregon. and so that would have been wonderful. But you know most of the cases that he solved were in Northern California, and so I was able to visit some of the places. but no, that would have been that would have been nice. And in an ideal world, you know, you would do that as an author. So for Death in the Air, that book t- pl- took place in 1952 in December. Uh, December 5th through the 10th of 1952. And so when I went to London, I went December 5th to December 10th, you know, just to feel the cold. I mean, it's kind of sounds silly, but you really want to connect in that way. But sometimes it's just impossible to get everywhere. So, you know, I did the best I could.
0: Oh, of course. The the reason I ask is that I've, I've actually been there twice Um, It's off of I-5 in the mountains out of Ashland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And you get to the site by parking in this little rest area and then walking through some trees to this abandoned train depot. And from there, you have to walk through this really long and (laughs) frankly pretty scary train tunnel to get to the clearing where it happened. But it's worth the walk through the tunnel to get to the other side. So...
2: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And, and I think that, you know, being able to feel a location like that is so important. I mean, again, this is, for me, it sounds silly, but, um, there are, gosh, I think I counted seven or eight different guns used in throughout the book, including, you know, with this one, a shotgun. And so I had a friend of mine, a couple of friends who were avid um weapons experts and they took me to a shooting range and I fired every one of them which really helps me I mean it's nice to be able to to explain with certainty what the kickback feels like on a you know big double barrel shotgun which is a lot stronger than I thought it would be and you know versus a little pistol and so it was a it's an interesting experience I think that every author who can would love to immerse himself or herself into, you know, the story in that way, because you just can, you could feel it. Like you could describe the breeze. It just feels more accurate when, you know, when you can certainly get out there and do it.
0: For sure. There are a lot of interesting cases in this book and we probably only have time to go over two or three. Uh, But one episode that I've always wanted to do and I haven't just yet found the right interview is an episode on the Fatty Arbuckle murder case. Yeah. I was pretty excited to see that Heinrich was involved in that case. Mm-hmm. Would you mind summarizing the the case and how Heinrich was drawn into it?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, unfortunately for Fatty Arbuckle, of course, that Oscar Heinrich was involved. So in 1921, Fatty Arbuckle was Uh, uh, probably the largest, well, not just the largest, but the, the greatest star in Hollywood in a silent film era where really movies were just capturing audiences, and it was such a huge industry. And Fatty Arbuckle, whose real name was Oscar, or I'm sorry, whose real name was Roscoe, uh, was at the top of it. He had, um, you know, he was making the most money. He had a film that was currently in theaters that was selling out, and he had just finished wrapping up. Another film when he had a, he was, you know, planning kind of to throw a party at this exclusive hotel in San Francisco at the St. Francis, which is where a lot of movers and shakers from Hollywood would come up, and, and remember this is Prohibition, so he had quite a lot of illegal alcohol, and he rented several suites. And this was a nice party thrown in his honor to celebrate the wrap up of this film. So there were Hollywood kingmakers there, um, including his agent and several producers, and then there were women, inevitably, who were showgirls, chorus girls, and there was one named Virginia Rappe and virginia was a you know small small kind of time actress um she was a model but she was really you know coming into her own she was uh, a fledgling fashion designer and but she was seemingly on the the party circuit and so she and fatty arbuckle got along well that night it's we're not sure how well i mean she kind of uh gave mixed information as did he but um, within several days, Virginia Rappé was dead in this hotel room. And the initial diagnosis for this was that um, she had had, I think it was perititis, which is, um, you know, an inflammation of the bladder. She had had this reoccurring before with a lot of alcohol and illegal alcohol that's cheap. This was something that could have been inflamed and could have killed her, certainly. But there were conflicting reports that she, the, her bladder had sort of exploded um, based on a very heavy weight. And Fatty Arbuckle was quite heavy. So um, the showgirls who were witnesses essentially said that Arbuckle um, closed the door and they had clearly been fooling around and he had crushed her Kind of under his immense weight, but there was also an accusation of a sexual assault with a foreign object. And this became years later, even after Fatty Arbuckle died, something that permeated, you know, throughout his, his life and his legacy, which took him from legendary to notorious. Um, I even now I know people who, you know, have have heard the story of Fatty Arbuckle assaulting Virginia Repay with a Coke bottle. That never happened with a piece of ice that never happened either. So, you know, there's a lot of rumors and innuendo connected to this case. So once she died, the police filed criminal charges, of manslaughter. Initially, it was first degree murder, but they couldn't prove it. So he was charged with manslaughter and. Oscar Heinrich was was brought in by the prosecutor in San Francisco. So if you look at the cover of my book, the cover, which is a huge handprint, is actually Fatty Arbuckle's hand that Oscar Heinrich took. He went to the San Francisco City Jail. He took, you know, of course, his ink pad, and he took handprints from Fatty Arbuckle. And that was really um, important to me to have on the cover because the fingerprints in particular, the thumbprint paid such an important role in uh, Fatty Arbuckle's case. Heinrich was a, a fingerprint expert. He came um, several weeks after the incident happened, and he collected just mounds of evidence. You know, I detail it in the book, but I left out probably 99% of it. I mean, he had just like pages and pages of evidence he knew this was a really important case this was you know the country's biggest star at this point once he had been arrested fatty arbuckle had essentially essentially been blacklisted by hollywood uh, theaters were pulling his movie out of circulation uh, he was really convicted before he even you know stood trial and part of this comes to the times right so we're in the middle of prohibition we're in the middle of a, um, a religious movement that's sweeping the country. And it is, is, particularly in California, a fight between the religious right and Hollywood. And Heinrich was right in the middle. He was a fervent believer that Hollywood was going to take us into hell. And he disliked Fatty Arbuckle. Um, and he really felt like Fatty Arbuckle was guilty, which is dangerous because he's bringing in his own preconceived notions into the case. And so um, as we move along to the case, we find out a lot of things. One is that Heinrich is using fingerprinting evidence, which I'm not sure if your listeners know this, is wholly unreliable, um, without having this pristine, incredibly accurate fingerprint, which you're probably not going to get from a crime scene. So the National Academy of Sciences Um, released a report in 2009 that still stands, nothing has changed since then, that pattern matching evidence. So when you're taking something like a fingerprint from a crime scene and comparing it to the fingerprint of a suspect or a victim is wholly inaccurate. It's up to the opinion of the analyst. It is not scientifically tested There aren't scientific reports behind it. It's not like toxicology or DNA analysis where there's been rigorous testing, peer evaluations, you know, studies printed up in journals. That has not happened with things like fingerprint evidence, um, bite mark evidence. These are things that are now basically considered junk science. And so the danger we have now is still some of these things are leaned on very heavily to convict people. And we shouldn't be doing that. So if we go back to Fatty Arbuckle, the fingerprint evidence, I saw what Oscar used, right? So I saw the photograph, I could see the fingerprint evidence and what he said was that he had two handprints, one on top of the other, one was Virginia Rapace and the other one was Fatty Arbuckle's. And it proved that Fatty Arbuckle was forcing Virginia Rapace to stay inside the suite. It was more evidence that he was the aggressor, right? And so this evidence was what ultimately uh, forced mistrial after mistrial in this case. It was frequently one juror who believed him, Oscar Heinrich, in this bad evidence. And this was, to me, a big turning point in his career because he was taking on Hollywood. He was taking on what he thought was an immoral establishment. He was bringing his personal his personal feelings into it, and he was bringing in evidence that he thought was good that had been used for hundreds of years. And we now know that it's not. And so therein lies, you know, the problem with the Fatty Arbuckle case is that you are making assumptions that this happened. It doesn't mean regardless of whether he was keeping her in the in the room or whether or not, you know, he assaulted her. We don't know. Um, we do know that the witnesses who accused him of killing Virginia Rappe recanted and then unrecanted and then, can't, you know, over and over again, they were unreliable. So all of the things that happened in that case now, with clearer eyes and with decades of experience with forensics and with expert witnesses and what we know, we know that this was a shaky case. And uh, a jury's uh i can't remember the exact number three or four juries had a really difficult time until he was finally acquitted but at that time you know his fatty arbuckles career was ruined absolutely ruined
0: and now a quick word from our sponsor
2: hello everyone you may recognize me as gabby from the history of everything podcast and my name is brenna and you don't recognize me from anything
1: But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host
2: with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief
1: Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl
0: received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian Colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened, in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. So I'd like to ask you about one more case, but would love it if you could pick it out. Do you have a favorite one that you find especially intriguing?
2: Sure. I mean, there were. it's unfortunate that I was limited to (laughs) 300 and something words, or uh, 300 and something pages, because, yeah, there were so many cases. I was pretty strategic in the cases I picked. One I wanted the most. Uh, material. So I actually asked the archivist for the largest cases, which are the ones that, you know, had the most, uh, that he collected the most information that had his trials transcripts that no one had read before. And then I wanted to make sure that they were cases that really showcased not just his skills, but his development. You know, like, um, in, in 1921, the case of a missing priest, he used forensic geology to connect the suspect to the priest. And then he used forensic geology again in the case that I'm getting ready to tell you about four years later. So the thing that's, that makes Oscar Heinrich such a compelling character in history is that in this time period, and I mentioned this before, you know, it's the wild west of forensics. So you have these experts who claim they're experts, but they're really untrained. Nobody took professional classes he used to joke that they were experts by correspondence, you know, like correspondence courses, like they would read a book and all of a sudden they're an, an expert in blood stain pattern analysis. And so Oscar was very, one of the very few who actually had the credentials. He was called the first professional expert witness because he was a pharmacist, so he knew about toxicology and he had, you know, he knew about drugs and medicine. He had a degree in chemistry from UC Berkeley. He became a chemical engineer and a sanitation engineer. So when he was a sanitation engineer, that's when he learned about geology. And he used a special test on, you know, uh, different, you know, like on grains of sand or dirt to find out what components made up that grain of sand or made up that piece of dirt or brick. And that way you can kind of trace it if you're in forensics. To a location of, you know, a suspect or a body or a piece of clothing. So, in my favorite case, um, which is also probably the most sad case for me, was the one of Bessie Ferguson, and it's right in the middle of the book. It's called Bits and Pieces, and in that case, Oscar Heinrich is sent um, something very morbid by the police in El Cerrito, California. He is sent an ear and a piece of scalp attached. And the cops said, we found this in a marsh. We don't know where the rest of the body is. We're assuming this person is probably dead, which is of course an understatement. She's definitely dead. And, um, we need your help finding the rest of the body and identifying her and finding who her killer was. So that's a tall order, even for America's Sherlock Holmes. So he starts examining again, this scalp and this ear in this incredibly meticulous way. And he starts examining it. And there's all these fantastic photos of him. And he he has her and ear on, a, you know, grid paper. He has close-up shots, which I did not include in the book. But I think might be on my website, um, which is just my name, KateWinklerDawson.com. Uh, so there's uh, there are all these incredible photographs of close-ups of the ear. You can see that it's pierced. You can tell that it's freckled from sun exposure. So he immediately starts building a victim profile. She is of Scandinavian descent. Um, she is well cared for. He could tell from the type of dye she used on her hair. She had pierced ears, which was a very kind of edgy thing in the 1920s for women. It was just beginning to trend. So this is someone who's probably young and who's keeping up with, you know, modern trends. And then he starts looking at um, the bugs. So he sees larvae from blowflies. Which is what, what blowflies do. They're the first bugs to arrive at a corpse. So, you know, forensic entomology is the study of how bugs, you know, appear in waves at a, at a corpse. And that's how people still now are able to predict uh, time of death. So only the blowfly was present on this ear, which for Oscar meant that this was a, a very fresh kill. Right. This was 24 to 48 hours at the most because he didn't see evidence of beetles or any of the other bugs that would come afterward. He made that a very specific note. Then he wanted to predict um, the time, what day if in this time period, this 48 hours, which day it was likely that this person was killed. And he looked at the moon phases um, in the paper and under the moon phases, he could tell of these two days which one was darker. So he assumed that this person was probably killed outside. So he was really able to narrow it down. But the biggest thing was, where is the rest of her body? And so he starts to examine the canal of the ear and he finds a piece of sand, which is really unusual because there's no sand where this ear was found. It's in a muddy marsh, you know, thick black mud in El Cerrito. There's no sand. So he examines the sand and he runs this test. Um, using a special microscope that he used when he was a sanitation engineer. This is again the first time a body has been identified or discovered based on forensic geology. He had used it before four times or uh, four years earlier in the case of the missing priest, but this was different. So he puts this grain of sand underneath the microscope and he turns on the special prism that sort of breaks apart the sand based on different lights and he's able to identify the components of the sand. So he opens up a map, and he can see that on this piece of sand, the salt deposit is very, very small. So this to him indicates this is not sand that has come from sand on a beach by the ocean because the salt deposit would have been much larger. This is small, so it's sand that comes from probably a creek or a river, that dumps into the ocean, but far enough away where the sand is not, you know, the salt deposits not larger. And then he looks at how smooth this grain of sand is. And he says, this is not stagnant water. This is sand, this comes from water that has been slow moving. So he opens up this geological map and he looks in about a 20 or 30 mile radius and he hones in on this spot at the bottom of uh, a creek you know slash river that's slow running that dumps into the ocean and he circles it and he shows the police and the police say you're nuts that's 12 miles away from where the ear was found and he said go look and so they did and in about a one to two mile area they found the rest of her body in different parts he had dismembered her And so I'm not going to ruin whether he catches the killer or not. And I'm not going to ruin who this woman was, who the victim was. But to be able to use one grain of sand that he photographed and blew up so that it looks so large, it looks like a rock to use this one grain of sand and use this test that really he would have been the only person who could have used this test because he unknowingly started his career in forensics. You know, 20 years earlier when he became a sanitation engineer, he had no idea he was going to go into forensics when he learned how to use that test. So he was a generalist that really doesn't, you know, doesn't occur today. You know, now in forensics labs, there are experts. They're usually just experts in ballistics or bloodstain pattern analysis or uh, toxicology. He knew all of it. He knew 20 to 30 different disciplines, some of it professionally, some of it he read about. But the people who he sought out as, you know, fellow experts, people he could consult with were these people who, you know, he thought were incredibly uh, knowledgeable, who had done appropriate research and they exchanged ideas. They exchanged techniques and they learned from each other. So it just made him this incredible detective. So of course people were dumbfounded by this and um, it was a case that haunted him for the rest of his life, this one particular case. And so as sad as it is, and again, I'm not going to ruin anything about the victim, but her life was also very complicated and this didn't deter him. You know, he wanted to find her killer. And so the, the, you know, if you look up the case, there is sort of this general knowledge of who everybody thinks Oscar suspected was the killer. But in the notes, he suspected somebody very, very different. So that's the power of actually getting in and doing real research and digging into that story.
0: Hmm, wow. Um, So you had access to his personal letters and have seen a side to him that others don't know. How do you feel about him after all of this research? Do you feel uh, a connection to him? Uh, were you able to glean from your research on him some insights into his personality?
2: Well, it's always interesting reading personal letters from someone. It feels sometimes uh, slightly like a violation, you know, because I don't know if I would want somebody reading my personal emails after I've been dead for 60 or 70 years. Um, but it certainly gave me a a really good picture of who he was and somebody asked me the other day if I thought that I would like him and I think that like and respect are two very different feelings and I'm not sure I would like him I, and I absolutely would respect him though uh, he was uh, organized he was controlled he was meticulous he wanted to get things right he wanted to be accurate He had confidence. And these are all things that I really respect. But I think because of that, because what I think inevitably was he was OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. I think because of that, it was very, very problematic for his relationships, his personal life. Um, He was very controlling. He was obsessed over his own finances. He was fearful over his mental health. Um, he was uh, in angst constantly over how much money his sons were spending, how they were spending it, how their lives were going, how successful they were going to be. And what it comes down to that was so interesting was that, you know, this is a man who spent decades chasing criminals, the most notorious criminals in the country. Uh, he worked for Scotland Yard. He worked for the U.S. federal government. He worked for small towns. He spent so much time nailing down these guys. But what he was most scared of were the bank collector or the the debt collectors in the banks. He was constantly in fear of people ruining his life by collecting money that he didn't have. And so that was what was so fascinating to me was the cases are interesting. But this fear that developed, you know, when you have this 70 year old man who cannot stop working because he's trying to give his sons the life that he didn't have, but it's destroying him. And he's installing handrails in his three level house so he can get down a rickety staircase so that he could work. It's sort of heartbreaking, but it's also so compelling and so interesting to me. So I think that's the long answer to yes, I could absolutely relate to him, but I think that for me personally, he serves as this cautionary tale of, I think he, he spent his life working and I think he thought it was for the, for the greater good for his family, but ultimately he missed so much, and I have two kids. They're twins. Two, uh, they're ten years old. And I, when I finished writing this book, made a really conscious effort to say, I cannot do that. I cannot miss my kids' childhood. Um, For work, and it's so easy to be sucked into someone else's life That's what happens to write a good biography and I just refuse to do that So that's that's really kind of my takeaway from from Oscar as a person.
0: Oh That's great So one last question. So your book is called American Sherlock Mm -hmm. When was Heinrich first compared to Sherlock Holmes
2: Well, it was really the Siskiyou train robbery in 1923. I mean, that's where I saw first saw the instances of it. But, you know, um, I think that with the Father Heslin case, it came up. But I think the headlines, like when he appeared in uh, Women's Day magazine and when he was in True Detective and when they made a radio show based on this train robbery, that's when the moniker really stuck. But, you know, you've got a guy who wears tweed and glasses and has sort of this professory feel about him. And, uh, you know, Oscar in public was so dismissive. I mean, kind of picture Sherlock Holmes type where he's just kind of like, well, yeah, of course I figured this out. You know, it was easy. One, two, three, razzle-dazzle. And it's sort of a, a way it makes you... Kind of feel a little silly uh, as someone who would never be able to figure it out. Privately, he was tortured with insecurity, which um, you know makes for really, really compelling reading because you want to know what happens to him. But that that nickname weighed on him because people expected it. They expected for him to not just solve crimes, but in this really grandiose fashion, and he couldn't. I mean, in some instances. In the archive, I found a locket, um, uh, that had a little picture in it, and I asked the archivist what it was, and he, and she said, oh, she picked up this case file, and it's, she said, it's the victim's locket, and it was a woman who had been run down by her own limousine six times. So somebody wanted her dead, and he could not figure out who did it. And it was a pretty big file, and he just couldn't, he couldn't figure it out. And so, you know, there were these cases where, unlike Sherlock Holmes, who almost always solves the case, he, he couldn't do it. I mean, he, you know, he was involved in more than 2,000 civil and criminal cases in his career. You're not going to win them all.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that he was invited by Scotland Yard to solve cases there.
2: Yeah, he worked especially during World War One and World War II. And uh, his son was one of the Monuments Men. You know, he was an expert. Theodore was an expert in art. And he and Oscar traveled actually when Theodore was older, traveled quite a bit through Europe doing art authentication. And Theodore was one of those monuments men who, after World War Two, would go and identify art that had been um, stolen by the Nazis. And Oscar helped him with that. And so he was world, you know, he's known around the world. All of the newspapers printed, you know, stories about him when, when he would do something impressive. So he, he was involved, um, with the federal government and, uh, was it, uh, Hoover had asked his opinion on the Lindbergh baby case and there, and Oscar didn't want to have anything to do with it. So, you know, there, there were, he was tapped for a lot of very, very big cases.
0: I know I I said I had one more question, but whenever Hoover comes up, I just have to ask. (laughs) (laughs) What was Heinrich's relationship with J Edgar Hoover?
2: Well, you know, Oscar would go to, to, he would stay in the I think it's the Mayfield hotel. He would stay in the Mayfield hotel in, um, DC. And he visited with Hoover several times. Oscar was really busy with other cases. Uh, most notably the David Lamson case, which you'll read about in the book. And he just didn't have time and he wasn't particularly interested in it. And he was away from home a lot. He preferred to take California cases because he didn't want to be away from his family that often. But the reality was, was that the federal government was a steady source of income, particularly as as the Great Depression, you know, was hitting in 1929. And so he always had federal agents asking, you know, for his um, in, uh, input. But once the FBI became the FBI, and it wasn't no longer the Bureau of Identification, I think is what the official name was until it changed. Um, then they started, the FBI started creating their, their own um, federal uh, crime lab. And so independent contractors like Heinrich weren't getting as much work. So it was an odd time
0: yeah for sure so heinrich's legacy I mean it's pretty easy to witness his legacy in the work of modern day crime scene investigators, right?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that, as I said, he was the first professional witness um and he you know uh made huge strides in ballistics, particularly in ballistics photography. He was one of, the, another one of those witnesses that just continue to challenge forensics and push it forward, um, through so many different disciplines. But this is not the sexiest answer <laughs> or explanation in the world, but he was a professor and that's what I do. And I believe that my legacy will be not necessarily writing books or podcasts or anything else that I do. It's teaching. And that's what he did. He taught thousands of people in law enforcement and, you know, legal circles and lay people about forensics and about how to catch criminals and how to be um, a meticulous investigator. And then they went on to solve thousands and thousands of cases. And some of them went on to teach thousands and thousands of people. And to me, that's his most important legacy. I know everybody wants to hear that he invented this and he did you know but he influenced so many people by teaching you know 40 years at UC Berkeley it was it's really phenomenal the amount of influence he had in that time period
0: So you already mentioned your website this book has just recently come out and it is available everywhere books are sold right
2: Absolutely and and I have a a newsletter I'm going to be coming out with a podcast of historical true crime kind of it has the same feel as my books but similar stories and you can get on the newsletter which is at you know kate dawson KateWinklerDawson.com. so um yeah, i read the audiobook if you have an interest in the audiobook also so it's it's been quite a wonderful experience i mean i think you know csi has obviously created this fervor of interest in forensics and i um, am really happy to be able to provide, I think, a lot more accurate information in this book. So there is the razzle-dazzle of forensics. There are the true crime cases and this wacky man who had really big problems and, you know, um, how he, he goes through life. But the big takeaway is what we use now that's good and what we use now that's not good. And that is also
0: part of his legacy, for better or for worse. Well, thanks again for your time today. It's been great. Thanks, Eric. As always, I love talking to you. Again, I have been speaking to Kate Winkler Dawson. She is the author of American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of American CSI. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ribonis and have a safe tomorrow.